We are live and in full effect, holding it down for anchor.fm forward slash 215, the nonstop working podcast, the number one independent podcast, Philly's number one independent podcast. Thanks to all of our listeners around the world here in the tri-state as well. All right, D-A-U-S, the Divine Artistic United Society. I'm at our HQ right now, the HQ, the D-A-U-S HQ, you know. I'm over here working on some things that just actually got finished straightening up. Uh, we've been here. This is about this is the fourth month we've been in our new location right now. So I'm just kind of actually getting things settled over here. So I just unboxed some gifts that we want to go ahead and give away. We've had these gifts, uh, some merchandise uh, around for a little time. So we're going to go ahead and give away this merchandise that we have here. Uh, we got a lot of. Uh, um, handcrafted wooden pieces and stuff like that. So we're going to go and give those things out. All right. So you guys want to follow us on Facebook uh, and on the, the nonstop working podcast page on Facebook. All right. And if you're following me on Instagram, you want to be uh, keeping up because we're going to be talking about the giveaway and um, informing people on what they'll need to do to be able to um, partake in the giveaway. All right. It's free. I guess it is free. You know what I mean? We just, we've got this merchandise here. Um, we kind of need to make space for some of this new stuff that we have coming in. So we figure the best way to do it. Maybe go ahead and give it to, you know, some of these people who have been supporting us, following us, um, sharing our stuff, liking our content, buying our merch, our merch buying our records, these kind of different things. Uh, also, thank you to everybody who's been donating uh, and continuously donating. There's some people who said to me, uh, they plan a pledge to they basically told me that they've made a pledge and their plan is to donate a dollar a month. Um, some say five, but it's been between five and ten dollars that people have been pledging. And we didn't create a pledge program or anything like that. It's just something that uh, some of our supporters have been taking upon themselves to do. And we like that. We appreciate that. Yeah, but this is episode 12 of the Nonstop Working Podcast. All right. We've been doing an excellent job. We had some troubles with Anchor these past couple days because we weren't able to uh, get our program up. We recorded the show like three times and all the times Anchor uh, gave us some issues with uploading our content. It just disappeared basically. Uh, so we had to call We had to call Anchor and get them on the phone. We had to wait and email with them back and forth, back and forth. And about four days later this weekend, uh, Sunday, they were able to get things working again, get things cracking. So... We um, recorded another show. We got that up there for you guys. You guys were able to check it out. Um, we started playing it, listening to it right away. So thank you guys for that. Um, and yeah, let me see what I got here. I'm sorry. I'm just in a mental office. Y'all know how it is when you're, when you're in here. There's all these different things going on. So, you know, I'm like checking out stuff. There's, you know, there's different work to, that um, needs to get done. All right. I promised some people I would give them paintings. So I'm looking at some of these paintings like, I want to give these away. It's really hard to give away artwork, guys, because, you know, when you're selling artwork, it's like I'm, I'm exchanging this for the money. You know what I mean? Here's here's the artwork. Give me the money. I'm going to produce some artwork later. But when it when it's paintings and they talk about giving it as a gift, it's really hard for me to part with 
some of the work because I really don't think it's, um, I really think it's worth a, a money exchange, a monetary exchange. Uh, but, you know, these things happen. These things happen. But So we've been doing really good, though. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. We said this is episode 12. All right. We're going to chop it up about some things right now. Uh, the big thing that everyone's talking about right now is Trump, is Donald Trump, President Trump being impeached. Um, I'm actually going to I'm actually going to talk about impeachment, what that means. You know, what I mean, we'll, we'll go look at the definition of the word. All right. Um, because my question is, what happens after the impeachment? You know, what I mean, he gets impeached and then what? So I think a lot of people think that Donald Trump being impeached means. Um, I, you know, honestly, I don't know what they actually think it means. You know, I have no idea what they think it means, but uh, but we are going to see. I think a lot of people think that it means. Um, sadly, I think they I think a lot of people are looking at things from a black and white perspective and are just hoping that he loses. And they they're making impeachment the same as lose. Like uh, he got impeached. He was a loser. You know, what I mean, it's, it's, it's not really like. Yeah, you know, I don't know. People just basically don't like the man and they want to see things happening to him because they don't like him is what I believe. But we'll see how things go. So we'll look at that. I'll pull up the word impeachment. We'll talk about what that means. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll be able to get some callers in to the nonstop working podcast. It's been tough getting guys on the line, mainly because of the times that we've been releasing the show. You know, not everybody is able to dedicate uh, 20 minutes, 10 minutes even of their time to be on the phone during the day. And uh, the Nonstop Working Podcast, the full hour show, has been hitting guys um, every Wednesday, you know, consistently and things like that. So we've been able to schedule meetings with uh, different artists and different guests who are able to come on. We've been able to even schedule um, phone interviews and conferences with these people, but they're normally later in the evening. So I'm working out a way, I'm working out a way to get you guys those recordings, those those segments that we record with other people. And I think I might just have to fire those from the hip, you know, on a on a on a regular day or on a on a on a day where we meet with these guests and talk to them. I might just have to fire their recordings from the hip and let you guys um, enjoy their uh, interviews separate from the full hour nonstop working podcast show, the full hour show. So that might, that might be the move. That might be the move. All right. Okay. So we got third base coming to you guys soon. We talked about that. You know what I mean? But you don't, we don't want you to, to miss out. We got, um, that's coming up. That's going to be available for purchase January 3rd. If you haven't already visit our website, www.daus.me. All right, we're trending in over 112 countries and growing on the website, 109 with the podcast. All right, we're pushing 15,000 streams with our podcast, and we're pushing over 50,000 visits to our website. All right, we've had our website active since 2012. It's done a lot of growing since then. If you go to our website right now, it looks really good, but it didn't always look that way. Okay? You know, and I built that. I built the website from scratch. I've been building it since, like I said, since 2012 to this point. And anybody that's been following along, y'all know we've we've had um, multiple layouts go up. You know what I mean? And it's been a fun time, but I like what we have now. But 
get on over there, visit us. All right, and um, we're going to be jumping more into our show, you guys. You know what I'm saying? We're going to do a quick commercial break because that's how we pay the bills. But, uh, yeah, definitely don't go away. Keep tuning in. And this is the Nonstop Working Podcast, people. some food with soul how about catering with soul well stop by Haverford Grill and Soul at 6548 Haverford Avenue Philadelphia PA 19151 call for more information at 215-476-7685 and at 215-476-7686 Chizzle, it's your boy Mr. Heard, M-I-S-T-A, Heard like I heard you the first time. Be sure to search for my music on Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, Apple Music, iTunes, Deezer, Tidal, and SoundCloud. Check out my EP Heavyweight, it's heavy weight. For bicycles, bicycle repairs, and bicycle tune-ups, visit Dr. Cycles at 36 and Lancaster Avenue, Philadelphia, PA. That's Dr. Cycles at 36 and Lancaster Avenue, Philadelphia, PA. Call in for an appointment at 215-823-6780. Impeached. What does it mean? Let's take a look. To call into question the integrity or validity of a practice. British. uh, To charge with treason or another crime against the state. Hmm. U.S. To charge with misconduct. Hmm. So we'll read this definition here. Wikipedia reads, impeachment is the process by which a legislative body levels charges against a government official. Hmm. Impeachment does not itself remove the official uh, definitely from office. It is similar to an indictment in criminal law and thus It is essentially the statement of charges against the official. Okay. Okay. So everybody's talking about um, Trump being impeached. And there we've read it. Okay. Gave you several definitions. And we also read the Wikipedia definition. All right. So impeachment doesn't mean he won't be the president. It doesn't mean that. Uh... But it does suggest that he will be charged and called into question about some of his actions. Um, Do I need that to happen? Whatever. You know what I mean? You know, you guys let me know what you think about that. If you think Trump needs to be impeached 
after now knowing the definition? Does, does he need to be impeached or is this something else that needs to be done? I think all of this is really exciting, though. Uh, seeing all of the people in an uproar, but not even certain about or not even really sure what impeached means. You know what I'm saying? But many of us are thinking that impeached means fired. We think where well, many of us are thinking that impeached means he'll no longer be the president. I am interested in seeing, though, if he is impeached and he's called, um, if he's called in for questioning, what will happen after that? You know what I'm saying? I'm thinking he's already been called into question. I'm thinking we've been asking him questions since before he became the president. Yeah, that's just me. But So we'll see how this thing turns out. Let me know what you think. Uh, I'm going to try to see if we can get a caller. You know what I'm saying? Let's see if we can get a caller to uh, chime in about this whole Trump impeachment situation. I definitely wanted to ask you what you thought about uh, this Trump thing, man. You know I'm out here. Everybody's uh, hitting me up like, yo, Trump about to get impeached. Trump about to get impeached. But I'm like, okay, do y'all even know what impeached is? And half of the guys, they don't know. So they're like, well, it means, well, one, they really, that's, that, that's what the response was. Well, it means he's not going to be the president no more. And I'm like, well, what's going to happen? And they're like, well, I don't know. It's just he's not going to be the president. So I wanted to know what you thought about that. Uh, uh, then on the Nonstop Working podcast, I put the definition of impeached. But I just wanted to know, what did you think about uh, um, him being impeached, the, the stuff that's going on right now in politics with, with him being the president? And what do you think it all means? Like, what's the, you know, what's the, uh, the end game for these guys? Honestly, bro, like, I've been a little weary about as far as what's the end game, because for me, I know it's all a distraction. Mm-hmm. I know it's all a distraction. It's like, people don't get, man, it's bigger than Trump. You know what I mean? It's way, way bigger than Trump. Mm-hmm. I personally don't believe, I don't believe Trump will be impeached. I really don't. Not at all. Not only do I not believe he'll be impeached, but I believe he'll be in 2020 election as well. Wow. I can dig that. I think it's just propaganda, man. I think it's just propaganda to always have something to talk about. Because if you pay attention, the exact same thing happened with Obama. Like, yeah. literally the exact same thing happened with Obama. This isn't new. The same thing happened with Bush. Mm. So the threat of impeachment all throughout the presidential concern isn't anything new. Ah, uh, interesting. Interesting. Now, there were talks of, uh, like, violence and stuff like this. What are your thoughts on... Um, this impeachment thing being utilized as a means to kickstart some kind of uh, civil war. And, and that's exactly why I said I don't believe it will ever happen. That's why I said it's bigger than Trump. Because if we have impeachment, that's going to have civil war. It's people who have no clue about anything dealing with politics. They just know my guy's in the office. And if he gets out of the office for his term, then I'm starting the war. Right. You know right. People who really have that mindset. Mm-hmm. Like people will take Trump impeachment as Trump assassination. That's what people don't get. Like it's bigger than just Trump. Now, if you want to see a civil war drop off, then by all means, go ahead and impeach him. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a group of people 
black man just just with him turning. Yeah. Why did it happen with him? Right. Right. Why, why are we trying to make an example out of our great leader? You already know it's, it's a good group of people who view Trump as a great leader. You know what I mean? They're great folk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know how the the response to great folk is. Yep. Yep. And there's this um I shared an article with the listenership. It was an article from one of these news stations, but they were out at one of the protests recently or one of these uh Trump events. Forgive me for not knowing which one exactly. But all of the people were shouting um and and um in defense of Trump saying that if he's impeached, they're going to take to the streets. If he's impeached, they're threatening violence. They're threatening uh uh you know, um, they're threatening, um, you know, causing some chaos. <coughs> so, do you think that's a real threat? And and also, if if yes, who's most likely to be affected by those threats of violence? Um, well, the unfortunate part is when you hear terms like liberal and the left side and the right side. People associate that with black being the left and white being the right. You know what I mean? So I believe definitely minorities as a whole, not just black or white, minorities as a whole are going to suffer from that. And, 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 you know, it's, it's people that in higher powers that wouldn't mind that because we're all fighting each other for the same problems we all have. You know what I mean? see the impeachment as another stall. You know what I mean? Because we could we could just say, look, he did these crimes right here, but instead we want to impeach him to ask if he's done crimes. Like, what the hell? Right, brother. You know, we do all of this because we want to because we want to see his taxes. <laughs> For real? Like, really, y'all? I kind of would want to see that go through, 
mm-hmm. will lead to the civil war, like I, most people believe it will, mm-hmm. because then that now gives him 100% of executive power. Look at that. You have civil war jump off. Right, right. Wall rooms out. Trump has executive power. So that impeachment, all that bullshit, even if he's under full fledged impeachment, that shit go on his head. So he might actually be pushing for it on a, on a low. He's like, yo, man, go out there and get, get, that, get that thing popping. Right, bro. Right. Smart man. Do you think do you think Trump is a smart man? Oh, I think Trump is a genius, bro. Not just smart, genius. You know when you say something like, um, my dad gave me a small investment of a million dollars. Niggas hear that shit like, yo, if I had a million dollars, I would take that a million dollar empire of a million dollars, you sure? Right. You sure you can do that? Right. Genius, bro. I think he's not just smart. I believe Trump is mm-hmm. a genius. Way Look at Twitter and all that, bro. That shit is crazy. Man. Exactly. I don't think he's doing nothing. Nothing is coming out about him. Nothing is coming out about him. Very interesting. I'm out here in the hawk right now, but uh, I'm going to add this to our podcast so our listenership can um, hear it. Okay. You know what I'm saying? And uh, I'll give you a ring back, man. We can chop it up some more about this. All right, bet. All right, good brother. All right, shalom. Shalom. What's going down? You know, we out here nonstop working on these holes. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Hang on a second here. Everybody's out here freaking about, freaking out on this um, impeachment thing. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot to um, freak out on at this point. Yeah, it was just a woman um, holding up the the line at the family dollar talking about... um. The Trump thing. She was all, yeah, and I'm just happy he's. I'm just happy he. Uh, he's getting out of there because we. I wanted him to. I wanted him to to go down. I've been wanting him to go down for a long time, and I'm just like, this doesn't mean he's going down. He's going anywhere, <laughs> right? You know, but that's just part of people not understanding, not really paying attention to the process, uh-huh. but thinking that this means something. That's how you know how many people really want it, but don't really understand exactly what's really going on. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And what, what's some of your take on um, this all? Um, I think that we all need to be very concerned about where our country is going at this point, um, and I think we all need to be very ready for change um, and, and accept it now, mm-hmm. um, because this is definitely a turn in our political system, I'm not going to say democracy, I say political system that a lot of people don't realize is going to be a major one, mm. a very major one. And and we don't know what the outcome is going to be at the end of all of this, but just know it's going to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this country is changing, period. And there's a lot period. of there's a lot of people talking about, um, there's a lot of white folks um, making threats of violence. 
the, the, how how serious do you think those threats need to be taken? And, and um, well, I think they're I think they're very serious, but I think at the end of the day, also we need to remember that where is the violence taking place and where is it going to? Mm-hmm. Who are they upset with? Who are they mad with? What do mm-hmm. they plan on doing? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I'm not concerned because most of the people that I consult with and that I see on a daily basis could care whether or not command some people or not. Mm-hmm. So there should be no reason for any violence to take place over here anyway. Okay. So who do you think, um, do you think black folks need to be concerned about the, the threat of violence? Do you think that's more of like a a government's problem? Like, yo, these, these people are going to be violent towards some kind of government officials? Or do you think we'll see just um, angry uh, mobs of white folks just attacking random black folks? I don't think that we have to worry about it. I don't think that it will be directed towards us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that we should be aware and alert of what's going on around us so we can avoid being put in situations where this might be taking place. Because I do believe that it's going to be close. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think it will be directed towards us. Why should it? Right. Very interesting stuff, man. Very interesting stuff. Um. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I really feel like at this point, it's too late for us to really be but so concerned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We should have been concerned. I'm not even saying we should have been concerned three years ago. We should have been concerned 30 years ago. How about that? So they're, they're saying that they want to reelect Trump. Do you think that's a good idea? Do you think his uh, presidency so far has yielded any positive results? No, um, I don't think that it's really yielding too much negative, except for what has been put on him, or what has been casted on him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and to give you a prime example, as we talk about like the um, the border wall, for instance, mm-hmm. um, this was something or a situation where they tried to make it seem like you know he was keeping these children locked up um, at these borders and everything when he didn't even want them here in the first place. <laughs> In, 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 in reality, you understand what I'm saying? So how can you relate that to being the same thing? Mm-hmm. You know, no, he wasn't keeping them here. Y'all were keeping him, keeping them here. Y'all wanted these people to have these beds. He didn't want them here at all. Mm. You know? Yeah, you know, you have to look at it like that. But um, I think he needs to be reelected because I think that that's the only way that the peace can be kept. Let him live out his eight years, go in peace, mm-hmm. you know? You know, if the Democrats really want to fight it, then make sure that you run the Senate and you run down the House. You know, mm-hmm. that way, if it comes to anything that he wants to do that seems weird, then just block it. Yeah. Completely. You mm-hmm. know? So. Now, and, you, and, 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 no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. You, you didn't mean to cut your thought off. No, you're good. Go ahead. So, a lot of people were saying um, King Jay mentioned this, and then there was. Uh, some folks online saying that they feel that the whole impeachment thing is a part of some kind of setup for something kind of like a catalyst um, for some kind of event or something like this. Do you see any of that uh, being possible? What's your take on that? Um, I mean, I can definitely see how it, it, it's definitely rising some people's attention and, and rising their, you know, their, their minds and their, their anger and things like that. But I don't think that it's going to 
turn into anything like that because you know you can you can try to get people to do these things and you can try to get people to get out here and do stuff but are they really going to do it mm-hmm. you know are these people really going to go and pick up a whole bunch of ak-47s and come out here and do it no right have they ever they really have the nerve actually really do it and that's the real question it's the same thing like back when we were dealing with michael brown and ferguson you know and things like that are can you really get us to get out here and start protesting and really fight like this no So that's the problem. I think it's going to backfire on them. Do I think they are? Yes. Do I think it's going to backfire? Yes. Period. That's what I'm talking about. Well, thanks for calling in and sharing with us. I appreciate you. No problem. And uh, we'll we'll have you back on, and um, we'll see how things go, man. Yeah, I'm definitely here to talk about it. All right, all right. We got to get you on here, too, to talk about Proposition 22, man. Most definitely, most definitely, most definitely. I definitely want to get into, um, you know, sharing what we're doing with Proposition 22, what projects we have coming up, as well as talking about y'all once I get back to my Okay. When can we expect the uh, the first pod, the first podcast up to the first uh, segment? January 1st. January 1st is going down. Yeah. All right. So when everyone wakes up from their hangovers and, that you, and you're not going anywhere, you're sitting in the house on New Year's Day, you'll have plenty to be entertained by. All right. There we go. <laughs> All right, guys. All right. So look out for Proposition 22. You guys have the first show. What's the what's the name of the show that you're that is going to be out on the first? It's SIPS, S-I-P-S-S-S-2 on Twitter, as well as you can follow Prop 22 TV on YouTube as well. Oh, boom. There it is. All right, guys. So go check out Proposition 22. You know what I'm saying? YouTube and Twitter, and stay tuned for SIPS. All right, coming January 1st. All right, man, I will reach back out to you soon. All right, peace out. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, since this impeachment, man, people have been very angry. You know, they've been upset the whole time of this president's uh, candidacy. Uh, but I just want to I want to warn you, I want to warn, warn all of my black folks out there that these threats of violence are very serious. You know, you should take these threats of violence very serious. It doesn't mean, in my opinion, that you need to go out here and rally against anyone or anything like that. But we should really take time to really uh, consider the implications of uh, what these people are saying. You know what I'm saying? We really need to consider that. These people are talking about taking to the streets with guns and all different kind of stuff like that, all right? But we just need to understand that this isn't the first time this has happened. This isn't the first time that something has excited the white people in America and um, giving them reason to riot. So I'm going to share some clips um, talking about some of the other instances where rioting occurred in America where black folks were um, consequently the um, the victims of um, several massacres, um, riots, and um, you know, poor treatment um, of uh, 
the white citizens here in America. All right, so check this out. It's going to talk about three different three different instances where these massacres occurred in U.S. time. I know a lot of us know about Tulsa, Oklahoma. Many of us know about Rosewood as well. All right, but we're going to talk about. Um, I think there's four that I have. Um, clips of all right so check these check these out and remember guys these threats of violence are very serious and we need to take precaution you know what i'm saying we need to be very serious about th these threats we should be taking these threats seriously all right but check this out man people are really heated about this um donald trump guy possibly being removed i i'm gonna play a clip here news um station talking about it all right so check this out man people are really really fired up cbs news attended donald trump's rally in hershey pennsylvania and unfortunately there was a video produced that shows you what some of the supporters think about the impeachment process and what could happen if Donald Trump gets removed from office? Credit to CBS News' Jason Silverstein for this video. Well, he's not going to be removed. He's not going to be removed. He's not going to be removed. You feel confident in that? My, my, my 357 Magnum is comfortable with that. End of story. I think it'll cause physical violence in this country that we haven't seen since the second civil war. Since the first civil war. I think it'll become the second civil war. I would think that there would be a strong movement. Very negative. Possible violence. Not that I'm condoning violence. There'll be a lot of mad Americans. Possibly 70, 80,000, 70, 80 million Americans did he do something wrong? It doesn't appear to me that he did. But I think you're I think it's gonna be very hard for people to change anyone's mind. If you're a Trump supporter, I'll speak for myself. As a Trump supporter, I believe and I don't believe that he's dumb enough to say something in front of all those people that would actually get him in trouble. So, uh, I thought the most interesting one was the woman near the end when she said, well, I can't believe it because I, 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 he can't be dumb enough to have said that uh, thing that basically incriminates him. Right. Nope, that's where you're wrong. He's definitely dumb enough to say it. Yeah. That's what I've been telling you from day one. He not only it, he can't help himself from doing crimes, but he's just too stupid to cover it up. And so that's why I thought he was going to be a goner. Uh, here we are. But, of course, the main point here is the threats of violence. And they're quite brazen about it. Um, now, look, uh, I thought Blue Lives Mattered. Uh, because if you're rebelling against the government and you're talking about grabbing your guns, that would mean shooting cops. Uh, so I hope to God they don't plan to do that. And and what, why are you shooting them? Like, so, okay, Trump gets removed. Who are you randomly shooting? Right? And if he gets removed, by the way, it will be the Republicans who agreed we cannot get two-thirds in the Senate without the Republicans. Mm -hmm. That must mean he was overwhelmingly guilty. Mm -hmm. But well, guys, he is overwhelmingly guilty. There's no, there's no question about that. But if the Republicans go along, that means, my God, did they get him, right?
And he got himself, of course. See, he's the one that does all this stuff. But what even perhaps even more important than the threats of violence, and that's gigantic, is the cult. I mean, look at them. They genuinely believe it. They no facts penetrate their subculture. Nope. It's they they this that bubble is an unbreakable shield. Yeah. Facts can, are not allowed to enter. No matter what happens, these folks are positive yep. that Donald Trump is God's gift to America. He's done nothing but great things. He's never said anything wrong. And everything, everybody that yep. uh, points out the insane stuff he says are fake news and a witch hunt to get him, etc. So apparently windmills do cause cancer because of the noise. Uh, and if you do exercise, it's bad for your health because it uses up the energy of your life. Yeah, you have finite uh, energy. Yeah, and... And we can go on and on, uh, and, and it's amazing that yeah. they they think that he is just this wonderful, intelligent guy. I, I can't believe it. So, when I first saw that video, I, I had a very similar reaction to anyone else. I was disturbed by it, but then I, you know, tried to talk myself out of being disturbed because. Look, we know what it's like to have, let's say, Fox News go to. Uh, liberal or progressive demonstration, let's say Occupy Wall Street, right? They would go to Occupy Wall Street and they would purposely interview people who maybe didn't know everything they should have known, uh, but they were part of that protest, part of that movement. And they did that in an effort to, uh, you know, delegitimize the entire movement. And so I thought to myself, well, you know, are these people really representative of all of Trump supporters? And, and I'm specifically referring to the calls for violence, right? And so you want to have a broader picture. You want to have a better idea of, of, you know, generally speaking, what type of impact does Donald Trump have when it comes to violence in America? Because he encourages violence. We've shown you several examples in the past, and we've seen the number of violent, uh, you know, politically motivated attacks in this country go up, right? So let's look at the broader picture. And here's what's going on. So according to uh, a report in Business Insider, a January 2019 uh, report by the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism shows that the extremist killings in the United States in 2018 had links to right-wing extremism. And all of them. All of them did. So there were right. at least... And I'm going to stop there. See, it's interesting, guys. The The... The one guy, the first guy said, he said his 357 Magnum uh, proves it or something like that. You know, you know, these, these are the racists. When we're like, who, who's racist? And I don't, uh, these people are the racists. Um, these people, when they were asked questions about Trump, all of them responded as if there was nothing he had done or could do. None of them spoke about any allegations. They they played totally dumb. And when you talk to a white supremacist, that's what a white supremacist does. A white supremacist plays totally dumb. Huh? What? What do you mean? That's what they all did. They're saying that it could be violence if he's removed and as the the gentleman from the news uh, clip said well violence against who trump gets impeached you grab your gun and who do you go out and start shooting with your gun as he said is it the police is it 
black people? Who do you go and start shooting at? Who do you take your anger out on? And some of these people, some of the the people that he was interviewing were black people. Some of those people in that video were black saying, you know, it could be some violence. Who do those people act their violence out on? So I'm very interested to see what happens, man. There's a lot of talking going on, you know. It's a lot of talk. Let me know what you guys think. historians alike often overlook the Colfax massacre, a very bloody yet crucial event that transpired during the reconstruction. The massacre set possibly one of the most critical judicial precedents of the century in U.S. versus Crookshank, a decision that would come to be regarded by many as one of the worst Supreme Court decisions in American history. After the Civil War, the commencement of Reconstruction signified both new beginnings and new opportunities for African Americans in the South. Southern Democrats, particularly farm owners, felt betrayed and knew not what to do with their land and plantations without a workforce to tend to their needs. With the passage of the 14th and 15th Amendments, the future looked bright for Blacks who wanted to have their voices heard and even the opportunity to participate in voting and politics, which further infuriated Southern whites. On April 13, 1873, exercising their new First Amendment right to freely assemble as citizens of the U.S., a large group of Black Republican freedmen gathered in a courthouse in Colfax, Louisiana. An armed group of about 300 white Democrats from the paramilitary group the White League descended on the courthouse and killed anywhere from 80 to 150 of the freedmen. Of the freedmen killed, about half were murdered in cold blood. Historian Eric Fawner deems it the bloodiest single act of carnage in all of Reconstruction. After such a gory affair, it seems that the men of the White League should have been easily convicted in a court of law. However, of all 300 men, only nine were brought to trial, and all were acquitted. Furthermore, in U.S. v. Crookshank, the Supreme Court ruled that the federal government had no power to protect the newly freed slaves from simple murder, and that the due process and equal protection clauses only applied to state action, and not the action of individuals. It stated specifically, the 14th Amendment prohibits a state from depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, but this adds nothing to the rights of one citizen against another. Because freedmen were no longer protected by the Constitution, they were left to the mercy of racist state governments. Because of U.S. versus Crookshank, the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution was essentially null and void. The KKK was allowed to use violence and fear tactics to suppress black voters, or those they thought were out of line. As whites dominated southern legislatures, they simply turned a blind eye to the violence against blacks, refusing to acknowledge racial hate crimes or persecute those who committed them. The federal government was left powerless to intervene or protect black citizens. Perhaps 
worst of all, U.S. v. Cruikshank set a grisly precedent and is still being cited in the present day to block gun control laws, civil rights cases, and most recently, the Violence Against Women Act. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun For a long time, if you went to the library in Wilmington, North Carolina, there was one thing you weren't allowed to research. We were refused. We were rejected by the librarian. When I asked about or inquired about 1898, they wanted to know why. I was told that, yes, they had something, but they kept it under lock and key. The story of Wilmington in 1898 still isn't widely known. What happened here on what's now just this empty patch of grass would radically change racial politics in North Carolina. This is the story of an American election, but also of something we don't, we don't usually find in American history. The violent overthrow of a democratically elected government. In the late 1800s, Wilmington, North Carolina was the state's largest city. It had a majority black population and historians today describe it as a rarity in the post-Civil War American South. Wilmington, prior to November 1898, was what the New South could be at the cusp of the 20th century. There was a, an unusual degree of, of black prosperity. In Wilmington, there were successful black entrepreneurs, doctors, teachers, but also black elected officials. And for a time, that was true throughout the state. Take a look at the politicians on this poster of the 1889 North Carolina House of Representatives. Here at the bottom are black Republican representatives, some from Wilmington. North Carolina also sent four black Republicans to the U.S. Congress between 1875 and 1899. The Democratic and Republican parties of 1898 in many ways occupied opposite parts of the political spectrum than they do today. Most African Americans were voting for the Republican Party, and the Democratic Party was white voters almost exclusively. White supremacy was the central focus of the platform for the Democratic Party. Republicans in North Carolina were successful in part because of a third party called the Populist Party made up of mostly white farmers fed up with the tough economic times. North Carolina populists joined up with Republicans to form what they called the Fusion Party. And in the elections of 1894 and 1896, the Fusion Party defeated the Democrats in sweeping victories statewide. That meant North Carolina now had a government that shared power between black and white politicians, including a newly elected Republican governor. Together, they moved towards reforms that would favor black Americans and working class whites. This was something that the Democratic Party folks were, not, were simply not going to accept. A multiracial government wasn't just a disappointment for Democrats. It was more like a humiliation. 
they needed a plan to take back control of the state in the next election. So party leaders like Fernifold Simmons, future U.S. Senator, Charles Aycock, future North Carolina governor, and this man, Alfred Moore Waddell, came up with one to beat the fusion party by luring white populist voters away from their alliance with black voters. Wilmington, with a large black population and a local fusion government in power, would be a focus of their campaign. The state Democratic Party handbook for 1898 laid out their goal, consolidate the white vote by stoking white anger and resentment. It said, this is a white man's country and white men must control and govern it. Their most effective tool was the media. One of North Carolina's biggest newspapers was a Democratic Party mouthpiece. It ran racist political cartoons throughout 1898. Not everybody was literate in 1898, but to see a political cartoon of the type that ran, you may not be able to read it, but you know exactly what it means. Many of the cartoons were centered on the threat of Negro rule, even though the fusion government was mostly white. They also played up another fear. Black men threatening white women became a theme. White men need to do all that they can to protect white womanhood. This was all part of North Carolina Democratic strategy, but it echoed the national racist rhetoric of the time. In one speech that Democrats printed in Wilmington paper, a prominent Georgia writer named Rebecca Felton said, If it takes lynching a black man a day to protect white womanhood, I say lynch. Her speech prompted a Wilmington black man named Alex Manley, owner of the black-run Daily Record newspaper, to respond with a column. He made a simple observation that, at the time, was shocking. That white women who had liaisons with black men did so voluntarily and uh, enthusiastically. Manley wrote, Every Negro lynched is called a big, burly black brute, when in fact, many were sufficiently attractive for white girls to fall in love with them. Manley pretty much said, in a nutshell, sometimes white women choose to be with black men. Manley's editorial became another tool for Democrats. Newspapers reprinted it, called it a horrid slander, and ran comments about it on a daily basis. It was just a few months before the election, and white voters were angry. By the time the election rolls around on November 8th, um, black voters, Republican voters, had been thoroughly intimidated here. By all accounts, the elections of 1898 were a sham. The Democratic Party had a paramilitary group called the Red Shirts. They attacked and blocked black residents from voting. At a rally just before the election, Alfred Moore Waddell provoked the crowds. He said, Negro office holding ought at once and forever be brought to an end, even if we have to choke the current of the Cape Fear River with carcasses. The votes were counted, and the Democrats won. Democratic candidates won every seat they had a candidate up for election in. But some local fusionist politicians remained in power because their seats hadn't been up for re-election, like the white Republican mayor and the board of aldermen. And, of course, the election did nothing to undo the economic power black folks held in the city. The Democrats had won the election, but their goal of total white supremacist control remained out of reach. And so they engineered what was essentially a coup d'etat. 
The day after the election, at a gathering for white men in Wilmington, the Democrats unveiled a document called the White Declaration of Independence. It contained an ultimatum. Cynthia Brown, whose descendants were in Wilmington back in 1898, is a historian at her church where there's a preserved copy of the declaration from the next day's newspaper. We will no longer be ruled and will never again be ruled by men of African origin. They would strip black men of voting rights. They would give white men a large part of the employment heretofore given to black men. And as for Alex Manley, we demand that he leave this city forever within 24 hours. The next morning, hundreds of white men marched to the offices of the Daily Record. Manley was gone. He had fled to save his own life. They set the Daily Record building on fire. This is where it once stood. Once the white leadership destroyed Alex Manley's printing press, they destroyed one way in which the African-American community in Wilmington could organize itself and keep itself informed. At City Hall, the mayor and board of aldermen were forced out. There's 200 armed men in City Hall at the time. They didn't do it of their own free will. And as they resigned, a new member selected by the Democratic Party, was voted into office. Waddell, who once threatened to fill the Cape Fear River with black bodies, was the new mayor of Wilmington. Meanwhile, the mob had grown to about 2,000 men, and the violence spilled into the streets. In these photos, X's mark where the first black residents were killed. The stories are that they were dumped into the river, um, and there are varying stories about how many people were killed. I see 40 to 60 clearly as fatalities as a result of the violence, but I think it was higher. Many black residents hid for days in the swamps and the wooded cemeteries in the city, including Cynthia's great-grandmother. And thousands of other residents fled Wilmington never to return. Shortly afterward, Democrats printed booklets celebrating a glorious victory, and in the newspapers depicted black residents as the instigators. This image is a gross misrepresentation of what actually happened during 1898. You know, what you see is African-American men with guns, not white men with machine guns. The city never regained its black majority population. Jim Crow laws, like literacy tests and poll taxes that prevented black people from voting, were immediately enacted, and Wilmington's spirit of black opportunity was crushed. Black political representation in the state was over. It would be 90 years until North Carolina elected its next black Congress member. Wilmington did a, a really great job of covering up a very dark past for a very long time. Over the years, the textbooks on North Carolina's history have struggled to accurately describe what happened in 1898. This one from 1933 says the situation was unfortunate for both races. And this one from 1978 doesn't have that much more detail. But they both praise Charles Acock, a politician who helped perpetrate the riot. They say he had a keen mind and a kind heart, and that, in fact, he was one of the best friends that the colored people had in the state. It's a legacy that North Carolina has yet to fully undo. 
The names of the perpetrators are on Wilmington school buildings and city parks. But the legacy is also bigger than those names. Turn on the news and the state's long history of political suppression echoes. And we turn to a strict new voter ID law in North Carolina. Racial gerrymandering and a push for new voting maps. The court says the Republican-led legislature redrew congressional districts along racial lines, violating the Constitution. There's a tremendous amount of intimidation that is still felt by the black community. It doesn't have to be mass mayhem and violence in the streets. The strategy shifts towards designing state laws in such a way that you could exclude blacks from uh, voter participation. The subliminal uh, pursuit of continuing the white declaration of independence. And if you don't see it for what it really is, it can happen all over again. African-American soldiers enlisted to serve. But while they fought for democracy abroad, their own country, America, was still not willing to see them as equal. White supremacy was very mainstream at this time in the United States. Basically, a lot of African-Americans were seeking to obtain their full rights and equality in the United States. And violence was often used by mobs of whites. Tensions reached a boiling point in the summer of 1919. Race riots broke out in dozens of cities across the country. But in the rural South, something even more menacing was taking form. There, slavery existed in all but name. In a system called sharecropping, farmers provided landowners with labor for a share of crops produced. But the system was rigged. Sharecroppers were often kept in perpetual debt. One black sharecropper raised $500 worth of cotton, and his landlord told him, yeah, but you used $697 worth of supplies, so you owe me money. Everyone who has any power at this point is working to make sure they keep African-American laborers tied to the land. For roughly 50 years, the system went unchecked. In the fall of 1918, a black man from Arkansas had had enough. Robert Hill had decided to form a union to represent sharecroppers. It was a dangerous decision, and one that would set off a chain of events involving mass murder, torture, and a landmark Supreme Court ruling. But first, he would need to organize. In his message, Hill was pretty simple and direct. Why is it that we cannot have fair payment for the honest and hard work we do? Despite the inherent risk involved with challenging whites, World War I veterans and other black sharecroppers became card-carrying members of the Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America. He believed that by paying dues, these members could have the services of lawyers and sue plantation owners uh, for cotton that had been stolen from them and false numbers that had been placed in the plantation stores books. On the night of September 30th, 1919, union members gathered in Elaine to discuss their legal plan. This is in Phillips County. It's basically just a crossroads at this time, a road, a few houses, a, a railroad siding, no streetlights. There's also a one-room wooden church, and that's where the union met. Expecting that they might have trouble, the union posted a guard of about six men. They had shotguns and rifles. The meeting's taking place, and while they're having this discussion, a car rolls up the road. Two white men were in the car. By one account, one of the white men in the car said, you all get away from there. And shortly thereafter, a shot was fired. 
Though it remains unclear who fired first, a barrage of gunfire broke out. One of the white men was killed almost instantly. The rumor of a black uprising spread in a matter of hours. The idea of a sharecropper rebellion conveniently played into the hands of landowners who did not want their sharecropping practices scrutinized. They did all they could, as quickly as they could, to sound alarms that black farmers were out for white blood. The story gets magnified that the town is under attack, that blacks are killing people in the streets, that there is a revolution afoot. The sharecroppers quickly formed self-defense groups, expecting repercussions over the death of a white man. But they could not have predicted just how severe the response would be. The following morning, under the watchful eye of Sheriff Frank Kitchens and his deputies, posses of white men were sent to find, detain, and kill the offenders. When you have an out-of-control mob just being told there's a Negro insurrection going on, that mob's being very indiscriminate in its violence. You see houses being attacked, black-owned homes being ransacked. The black school was burnt. Notable families were killed. Black women and children have to go literally hide out in the woods because many of these people are indiscriminately shooting at African-American women and their children. Black veterans and other African-Americans took up arms in self-defense. This no doubt just feeds into the mob fervor. The fact that, oh, they're daring to shoot back at us. This must really be an insurrection. One historian has identified more than 20 different killing sites where African-Americans were being killed. There are stories that mob members were taking souvenirs, such as ears or fingers, from the bodies of fallen African-Americans. One of the leading black families of the county, they weren't even in the town. They had just received a brother back from the French front. They are pulled from a train, put in the back of a car, and they are stabbed, shot, and their mutilated bodies are left on the side of the road. Within two days, 500 U.S. troops were sent to quell the supposed black uprising. They don't find any blacks killing or shooting down the streets. In fact, Colonel Jinks reports that the city is filled with hundreds and hundreds of white men with guns. Many of the individuals who were hiding in the thickets were former soldiers who had just gotten back from the war. And when they see the army troops come, they rush out, believing that the army troops are there to assist them. The army believes that these people are rushing toward them to attack, and they're cut down by machine gun fire. Although the exact number will never be known, a recent estimate suggests 237 black men, women, and children were killed. There was an immediate demand for justice, but not for the black lives lost. Five white men were also killed in the fighting. Hundreds of African Americans were rounded up and put in jail, and when the jail was full, they detained the rest in a schoolhouse. While they are detained, there is torture going on. The goal? To elicit false confessions of a black uprising. They whipped the men, whipped them for long periods of time. They stuffed formaldehyde up their noses, and they stripped them naked and shocked them with electrical charges. They did this until they confessed to the conspiracy. Robert Hill escaped to Kansas, but his peers back in Arkansas were not as lucky. 122 indictments were issued, and trials quickly started. The men were brought into the court in chains. They weren't allowed to consult with their defense attorney. The defense attorney rarely interjected. And then the all-white juries started delivering 
guilty verdicts. In one case, the guilty verdicts came back in two minutes. It's also important to point out that there were mobs of people outside who were demanding black blood. Governor Bruff maintained that at some point these people would be killed, but they would have to have been killed justly. The governor lived up to his word when among the 87 black citizens charged with crimes, 12 were sentenced to death by electric chair. Despite the system being blatantly rigged against them, the convicted men had one unlikely beacon of hope. The American justice system. The trials of the Elaine 12 had been highly publicized. The NAACP took notice and stepped in with legal help for the 12. For four years, the team faced a series of legal setbacks and advances until in 1923, the case made its way to the Supreme Court in what is now known as Moore versus Dempsey. There, the defense argued that the original trials had been mob-dominated and the black prisoners had been denied their constitutional rights. In a landmark decision, the court agreed. The good that comes out of this is that the NAACP sees for the first time that they can win in the Supreme Court, that things don't always fall along the color lines. The 12, subjected to torture, injustice, and litigation travesty, were at long last exonerated and released in January 1925. They might have escaped with their lives, but there was nothing that could reverse the pain and devastation felt by the black community in Phillips County. And no way to unsee the ungodly truth that American men, alongside the American government, were complicit in a massacre of American citizens on American soil. We, as a nation, have grown and we continue to grow. We don't need to pretend as if we've always had everything figured out. But if we are to do justice to who we are as Americans, we've got to own all of it. The Atlanta race riot occurred September 22nd through 24th in 1906. There was a lot of tension in the air amongst whites and blacks. There were several causes of the race riot. There was job competition for the first time between whites and blacks, and this, this frustrated a lot of whites. People like Alonzo Herndon would frustrate whites because there became this kind of a social elite class of, of blacks who were doing well, better than some of the whites. Alonzo Herndon was an incredibly inventive and successful entrepreneur who was born into slavery, learned the trade of barbering, and came to Atlanta and established a barber shop. And it was a barber shop that had African-American barbers who cut hair for white men. And so he was able to establish a very successful business. There was a way of suppressing black participation in political life, relegating African-Americans to a second-class status. And part of uh, making that happen was for uh, white people to vilify African-Americans. During political campaigns, a lot of candidates believe if they were more racist than the other candidate, they would get more white votes. And so you had a lot of just racial rhetoric. A couple of the newspapers printed stories that were untrue about black men assaulting white women. There was a guy running for governor named Hoke Smith, and Hoke Smith played off the white fears. In his speeches, he talked about the newspaper articles, the crimes against white women being committed by blacks, and he said that black 
disenfranchisement was necessary to, quote, put blacks or keep blacks in their place. And so he added fuel to the fire. So with all this climate, on September 22nd, 1906, white mobs began to assemble downtown. They took to the streets, and they just began attacking blacks. They began pulling them off the trolley cars. They began choking them, smothering them. They began attacking African-American businesses like Alonzo Herndon's Barbershop, and a number of African-Americans uh, were killed, uh, as well as wounded by the mobs. The governor uh, didn't immediately call out uh, the state militia, but eventually it was clear that uh, the Atlanta City Police could not disperse the mob, and so the militia was called out, but violence continued for several days, and the response of the African-American community was to defend themselves. And black people began to fight back. When this occurred, there were some white bodies who fell. There were dozens of blacks killed, hundreds were injured, tremendous property damage was done. The business leaders quickly got together because um, it was one thing to have the suppression of African-Americans, but it was another thing to have riots that was bad for business. The white leaders of Atlanta were also concerned about how Atlanta was viewed around the world. Press began to talk about how racist Atlanta looked. And so the white civic leaders reached out to black elites and they worked out a compromise to well, the violence, and there were black businesses that operated downtown. And so it was agreement that that would be segregated, and what came to be known as Sweet Arbor was created as a central black business district. Black people were no longer operating all throughout downtown any longer. So segregation was reinforced. Black people were blamed for the causes of the riot, but there was agreement that they wouldn't allow the mob to continue to attack black communities any longer. The white leaders were intent on further suppressing African-American rights, and so the African-American participants in this process were looking for safety, but in the long run, they were not successful in maintaining the voting rights that they had before the riot took place. And the response was further disfranchisement of African-Americans to make sure that they didn't have any effect on voting. And so in the legislative session that followed in 1907, the state passed a disfranchisement law that reduced the black electorate from 25% of African-Americans voting to 4%. And that held true then for most of the first half of the 20th century. On this segment of Worthy Women, we want to acknowledge a woman that everyone knows, or everyone today should know. She's a poet and an author, among other things, an activist. All right, she goes by the name of Maya Angelou, okay? I wanted to share, uh, I wanted to talk about or acknowledge Maya Angelou and Worthy Woman uh, on our Worthy Women segment this week because... Uh, one, she's, like I said, many of us are familiar with her, um, Aren't I a Woman? 
if I believe that's the, that's the name of the, the poem, one of her most famous poems with the young ladies. And she also wrote a book, I believe it's called, uh, forgive me guys if I get it wrong, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, or something of this sort, forgive me. All right, but we're gonna talk, they're gonna talk about that um, in just a second. There's a clip that we're gonna play. It's called, kind of an autobiography, quickly talking about some of Maya Angelou's accomplishments. Um, but I wanted to talk about her because uh, one, I, I follow I, I follow my spirit guides, my guardian angels, and they guided me to Maya Angelou, and I doubted them. I said to myself, "No, I won't go with Maya Angelou this week," because I really wanted to bring up some of the not so mentioned and not so familiar um, sisters. And just as I overlooked Maya Angelou, I turned on the TV. They were talking about the impeachment thing, and someone mentioned a someone quoted Maya Angelou. Um, in, in their presentation, they quoted her. And right then I felt like that was the, um, the angels telling me, no, you need to, you need to put Maya Angelou, um, in the worthy women's segment. So, so I did that right away. All right. So I want you guys to check out the autobiography here. It's a small autobiography, um, talking about Maya Angelou and some of her accomplishments. Um, I encourage you guys to look into her and also look, go, go back into our, um, previous episodes and check out the worthy women segments and if there's any of the sisters that we talked about that you're unfamiliar with get familiar with them okay also uh shout me a holler if there's any women that you would like to recommend um we highlight or acknowledge please please forward their names to me and uh, we'll get them up there in an orderly fashion all right but guys without any further ado this is worthy woman this woman this week's segment of worthy women and we're talking about maya angelou check it out a dancer Marguerite Johnson was born in St. Louis, She is impossible to define. An author, a poet, a civil rights activist, an actress, a dancer. Marguerite Johnson was born in St. Louis, Missouri in 1928. When her parents divorced, she was sent with her brother to live with her grandmother in racially segregated Stamps, Arkansas. Black people depended upon other black people for sustenance, all sorts of sustenance, social, economic, and religious sustenance. As a child, she formed a strong bond with her brother, who gave her the nickname Maya. She was taught by her grandmother to celebrate life to the fullest. She would need to keep her grandmother's positive messages handy when at age seven, she was molested by her mother's boyfriend. She only told her brother, but a few days later, the attacker turned up dead. Believing her words had killed the man, I stopped speaking for five and a half years. I simply refused to speak. I had voice, but I refused. When she spoke again, she and her brother joined her mother in San Francisco. She won a scholarship to study dance and drama. While she was in San Francisco, her progressive political views began to form. At the age of 16, after quitting high school briefly to become San Francisco's first African-American cable car operator, she returned to her studies. During her senior year, she became pregnant. She gave birth to her son, Guy, and supported him working as a waitress and a cook. In 1952, she married Greek sailor Tosh Angelus and traded in her waitress uniform for a microphone. She became a singer, taking the name Maya Angelou. 
The marriage didn't last, but her career flourished, landing a role in the stage production of Porgy and Bess and recording the album Calypso Lady in 1957. Although she had always penned lyrics and poetry, she finally began pursuing her writing more seriously. She moved to Harlem and joined the Harlem Writers Guild. She learned how to overcome the limitations and the challenges of her to achieve stardom as an artist and a writer. Her unique journey continued when she moved to Cairo, Egypt, with her then love interest, South African civil rights activist, Vusumzi Maki. She served as the editor of the English language weekly, The Arab Observer, before moving to Ghana to work as editor for the Ghanaian Times. In 1964, Angelou returned to America to help her friend Malcolm X build his organization of African-American unity. Those plans were scrapped when Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965. The assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968 left her devastated. But along with the great joys and painful lows she had experienced, her rich life served as the inspiration for her memoir, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Published in 1970, covering the early years of her life, it was a critical and commercial triumph. In the following years, more books followed, including four more volumes of her autobiography. By the 1980s and 90s, uh, America as a whole, regardless of race, had a profound appreciation of her talents as an artist, as a poet, and a writer. And so now she is widely seen as a national treasure. In 1993, she was asked by incoming President Bill Clinton to compose a poem which she would recite at the inauguration. Since 1981, she has served as a Reynolds Professor of American Studies at Wake Forest. And she has still found time to act in films and even host a radio show on Oprah Winfrey's XM Radio Network. folks so this concludes our episode 12 of the non-stop working podcast all right this is a long long episode but we we got some juicy content man we got a lot of content that we wanted to get into it's a hard time cutting it down all right so i hope you guys enjoyed something i hope you learned something i hope you took something away from this all right make sure you guys are visiting us at our website www.daus.me also follow us on facebook all right, the Nonstop Working Podcast. Follow your boy, Mr. Hurd, the Nonstop Working Podcast. All right, you can talk with me, interact with me on Facebook. All right, if you if you want to comment, leave comments on any other thing. All of the episodes up there, so you can find them as well. You know. But uh, yeah, it was a very healthy episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm not gonna hold you up too long here at the end of this thing because, like I said, we talked about a lot. But make sure you guys are tuning into the Nonstop Working Podcast. All of you um, iPhone users, if you have an iPhone, you're using an iPhone, you can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and within your Apple uh, Podcasts, okay? You can find it via Apple Podcasts, so all of you iPhone users should have that. 
but yeah definitely um keep tuning in we're trending right now in over 109 countries and growing we're quickly approaching 15,000 streams all right and uh, our listenership is growing so please share our podcast with your friends we have uh we have hundreds of segments up and recorded so i encourage you guys to go through some of the old segments and see what you missed um you know some of there's some rants in there as well but go back see what you missed and uh yeah i look forward to hearing from you guys all right this is the non-stop working podcast and next week you'll be listening to uh episode 13 all right this is episode 12 season 2 episode 12 of the non-stop working podcast and let's keep non-stop working non-stop non-stop work non-stop work